That's all right, man. He saw me that I needed to stand, so he thought he'd hide it from me. Well, good morning, everybody. My name's Mike Morrison. I'm on staff here with uh, working with the Young Adults Ministry. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, let's just dive right in. We're going to be in Titus chapter 2, continuing on in the book of Titus and this whole series on the pastoral epistles. So let's go there. says this, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're not, they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Pray with me. Jesus, we acknowledge that we need you. Like how this song we sang spoke of and... God, we're a, we're a weak, broken people. And we live in a broken, fallen world that needs you very much. And we can just uh, stop and even reflect about some of the, the things that are going on in the world around us. Uh, in Nigeria, in Sudan, and some of these stories that have come to our attention just in the past few days. And just, um, we're overwhelmed by the fact that we're, we live in a world that is um, hurting and that hurts others, and we're part of that, and we're not, we're not absent from that. We, we're involved in all of that. And so, Lord, we just acknowledge our weakness, we acknowledge our sinfulness, we acknowledge that we do need you, and we do need you to be our victory, because we know that we can't be our own victory. And so, Lord, as we open your word today, and as we come before you to hear from you, um, I ask that that can be what actually happens, that we can hear from you, not from me, not from... Uh, the lyrics of these songs that we're singing, but directly from you as the eternal living God whose words spring up to eternal life and are refreshment to our souls. And I just, I, I know how many people here are um, going through just seasons of, of dryness, of, of emptiness, of feeling distant from you. And I do ask that you can just be a refreshment to us. So Lord, let us hear from you this morning. Just be merciful to us and help us to be a people that... Um, just like this text says, can be eagerly expecting your appearing and to be oriented in that direction. 
Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Mike's got the sniffies when he gets emotional during the songs. Um, for the past several weeks, we've been walking through these, uh, the pastoral epistles, as we call them. Uh, these letters that have been written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy and to Titus. These are the two recipients of these letters. And uh, these, these are two of Paul's friends and delegates and his co-workers, really. And uh, both of these guys are involved in very tough situations. They're in very messy sorts of scenarios, and Paul is giving them guidance in the midst of that. And today's our second look at uh, Paul's letters to Titus, Paul's letter to Titus. And in our first look at Titus last week, we talked about how the overall burden of this book can be summed up in the statement that, or can be summed up as, good works for the sake of outsiders. This is something we mentioned last week. This is kind of the burden of it. Good works are important for the sake of outsiders. And, uh, it's a very grave, serious charge that Paul gives to Titus. And you see Paul using strong language throughout the whole thing. And in this passage here too. The church of Jesus Christ needs to be seriously aware that it belongs to Jesus Christ. This is why he cares about this. The church needs to be seriously aware that they're the face of the gospel to the watching world around them. They need to be seriously aware of the damage that can be done when their behavior discredits the gospel. And this, this message of the gospel that they're entrusted with is very important to, to keep pure, is what he's getting at. And the, this message is as important, uh, as important as it is in Titus' situation because there, there are some there who are trying to say that the Christian faith is, is all about loyalty to arbitrary human commands and devotion to an elitist sort of religious knowledge. We talked about that last week. That's in chapter 1. And, and so he's coming out of that chapter, and Paul writes to Titus, and he reminds them that not only are these people wrong on a theoretical level, on just a level of doctrine, but their very lives, their very works, deny their profession of faith. That's how he concludes the chapter. Prove that they don't know God, chapter 1, verse 16. And uh, Paul summarizes his, his assessment on these people as he wraps up the first chapter, and you can look at the end of that. He says, they are detestable, so it's this, this Old Testament word meaning displeasing to God, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So again, there's, there's this gravity there that sometimes we don't really know what to do with when we read these texts. There's this seriousness there. And it's easy, uh, when we look at this, you know, to make jokes about how Paul is this kind of grumpy old crank who just takes these things too seriously or something is going on with him there. He woke up on the wrong side of the bed. But we, we really do, in our modern day church, we really do have to understand that for Paul, the legitimacy of the gospel proclamation was at stake and there couldn't possibly be anything more grave, more serious than that. Paul, Paul was adamant that the reputation of the gospel-shaped people would be that there are people who have been transformed. Okay, so they can't just look like the rest of the Cretans. They can't look like these other people. They need to be these people that the Gospels had an impact on them. And he needs people to be able to see that. And he's very adamant about that. Not people who buy into a worldview or just a philosophy of, of religiosity or something that has no actual traction in their daily lives. It needs to actually have purchase in their daily lives. So that's why he cares about this so much. And, and we'll see that theme come up again and again uh, today and next week as we continue going through this. So... Paul finishes off chapter 1 with this renunciation that we're talking about. He says, these people are detestable, disobedient, 
unfit for any good work. And then he goes on to chapter 2. And like so often in these pastoral epistles, you see this contrast between these false teachers, between these disobedient people, and who Timothy and Titus are supposed to be. And so you see at the start of chapter 2, he says, But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Or more literally, speak that which corresponds to healthy teaching. This, this word sound that comes up a bunch throughout these letters is the Greek word hugies, and we, we get the word hygiene from this. And it's this medical image, the language here. It's, it, and it's really interesting when you think about it because it shows that the point here, when he talks about sound teaching, the point here isn't just to be correct in an abstract sense. The point is it's healthy. It brings wellness. It brings wholeness. Healthy teaching. Wellness and life is what it brings. So this is what Titus is supposed to speak forth, the sort of teaching that's healthy. And uh, this, this charge from Paul at the start of the chapter is really the core foundation for the remainder of this chapter. So you need to hold that in mind as this kind of main heading. Because after Paul gives this charge, we can sort of divide the rest of the chapter up into two main sections. Uh, the first section is what this healthy teaching consists of for various demographics, various social groupings. And the second section is the theological basis for why this sound teaching needs to happen. In other words, what is it about God, who he is, what he's done that drives this healthy teaching, that makes it necessary, that puts the gas in the tank, so to speak, so that it can happen. So first, what does this healthy teaching uh, consist of for various demographics? And remember, the background to all of this is this important need for the church to be unlike the Cretans. These detestable, lazy gluttons, evil beasts, all this kind of stuff that Paul says. To be unlike the Cretans, these disobedient ones. So Paul starts off by saying that older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Uh, Some scholars, they think that this older men designation can be pinpointed to a certain age by comparing it with other Greek literature. Perhaps it's 50 and older or somewhere in that ballpark. Uh, and it's hard to be certain about this anyway. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, John Chrysostom, he's this, he's this ancient church father writing in the 4th century, uh, he, he does think that Paul's list of virtues here actually indeed have to do with being an older man. So this is his words here. I'm going to read him. This isn't me. This isn't Mike saying these things. He says this, There are some failings which age has that youth is not. A slowness, a timidity, a forgetfulness, an insensibility, and an irritability. For there are many things which at this period make men less than vigilant, especially what I mentioned, as well as the difficulty of stirring or exciting them. So th- this is Chrysostom writing this as an older man, okay? Uh, so you can take or leave his assessment on, on how to interpret this. I'm certainly not going to be so bold as to speak to what the proclivities of older men might be. I'll find out soon enough, I'm sure, in my own experience. But the basic thing to catch is that Paul wants these older men to be exhibiting good character. If that's not too simple to say. He wants them to be exhibiting good character, maturity that's consonant, that's fitting with their age. And there's a word used in this list that we need to draw our attention to. It's very important. You'll see in this list he says self-control or self-controlled. This is one of these things there. And it's this very key term in our passage. It shows up uh, as many as five times in some translations. Just in this chapter alone, let alone the whole book. So this repetition from Paul lets us know that there's some real significance to this and, and, and what he wants in this situation, what he needs the church to look like in this situation. Uh, most 
Translations say self-control, but the NASB, if some of you have that translation, just says sensible. They are to be sensible. And uh, this might even be a better way to put it, to translate this word, uh, be sensible, be prudent, is the idea here. Uh, The longer definition of this word is to be marked by serious awareness of responsibility. Which is interesting. I don't, I don't really get there when I hear self-control. To be marked by serious awareness of responsibility. And the thing that struck me as I was studying this passage, and, and maybe as we look at it now, you might see this too, was that it seems like Paul is almost going out of his way to be basic here. To keep things foundational. So there's, there's no lofty, spiritualized language that makes you kind of wonder, okay, Paul, what are you saying? What are you really getting at? What do you mean when you say this? There's, there's no dramatic rhetorical flourishes here. Be sensible. That's all it is. Have a head on your shoulders. Be seriously aware of your responsibility as one who names the name of Christ. And interestingly, this word dignified that you see in this list as well, uh, this connotes the idea of being serious, having gravitas. And so this, this isn't Paul being a killjoy. When you look at these things, you think, okay, if this obsession with seriousness, with sensibility, this isn't Paul being a killjoy, This isn't him expecting a rigid, stoic attitude just for the sake of showing how serious and upright you are in some sort of pharisaical way. Rather, it's as one commentator says, he says this, the simple meaning is that we must take seriously the fact that we belong to God. So again, this this idea of responsibility. There there are entailments that come come along with naming the name of Jesus Christ. So as we go on, uh, just, just notice in this chapter, how often this idea of sensible, self-control, prudent comes up. Uh, moving on, verse 3. He says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now, when we look at this passage here, you can, you can hear this, and if you hear this in a certain way, if you interpret this through a certain lens, you can say, okay, well, come on, look at this. Paul's archaic, patriarchal, sexist attitude is just coming out full force here. So what are we supposed to do with this? And uh, we've dealt with this, this sort of stuff a few times in the pastoral epistles so far. But without getting into this too incredibly deeply, I just want to say that if we're careful readers here, if we're contextual readers here, this passage should be the furthest thing from controversial for a few reasons. So first... Uh, household codes, these sorts of rules for different demographics in the household, household codes were commonly passed on by teachers and philosophers in the ancient world. And we have evidence of some of these, and we can read them still to this day. And compared to those, Paul's teaching here and elsewhere is the furthest thing from conservative, from patriarchal, from offensive compared to these ones. In these ancient codes, the male leader of the household was addressed, just him, The male leader of the household was addressed, and he was told to keep all other members of his household in submission. That was his job. Subject to yourself is the idea there. And for Paul, he never once ever tells leaders of households to demand submission. Rather, he instructs people that as members of Christ's body, they ought to submit themselves willingly. That's a huge, huge difference. This is the task, this is the instruction that they themselves are given. Moreover, in uh, Ephesians 5.21, Paul says, Be filled with the Spirit, submitting yourselves to one another out of reverence, out of fear for Christ. 
And this is speaking to all Christians. And in the ancient world, a head of a household was never, ever told to submit himself to anybody. So even by Paul going there in the book of Ephesians, you see that he's doing something completely different because of who he is in Jesus Christ. Uh, Second thing, some people see this bit about working at home. I kind of read through it really fast. Some people see this bit about working at home in verse 5, and they say, okay, either A, again, Paul has this archaic sexist sensibility, or B, you know, we can use this as a proof text to prove that God's will is for the wife and the mother to only be in the home at all times, and so people polarize themselves on these two things when they read this. But both of these perspectives miss the point pretty widely. Uh, For one thing, Paul, as a good Jew, would have read the book of Proverbs, and reading the book of Proverbs, he would have read the chapter, the 31st chapter, Proverbs 31. And Proverbs 31 is this famous chapter that praises the virtuous wife who fears the Lord. And uh, in this chapter, the writer speaks of a woman who is out working in the field. Speaks of a woman who goes out to the marketplace and she sells her merchandise. This is a noble, virtuous woman. And so Paul certainly wouldn't have had any notion that homemaking is inherently the thing that you have to do as a Christian or as a, as a godly person. And there, there are a few more things that we could list, plenty of things we could list with this passage. But just to point out uh, one final one, just to make sense of this. We need to remember that in chapter 1, verse 11 of Titus, Paul tells Titus that there are some in Crete who are upsetting whole families, overturning entire households, is how some other translations put it, teaching what they shouldn't teach for shameful gain. And uh, we, we don't know exactly what this means. We don't know exactly what this would have looked like. But at the very least, we can infer that there is some serious subversion of household family order that was happening here. They're causing dysfunction within other families. And what Paul wants in these verses is a very basic level of family order. And like I said, when you compare it to these household codes in the ancient world, it's very basic. If anything, it's progressive compared to them. And my hunch is... My hunch is that if we had any real understanding of just how malicious, just how disruptive some of this Cretan false teaching was, how it overturned order in the family life, I feel that we would have no problem with Paul's suggested remedy for it here. I think we'd be applauding it. We'd be understanding exactly why he's going where he's going. So we need to be very careful not to just kind of have our modern snobbish way of reading these things where we think, oh, tut, 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 Paul. Such an archaic man. We need to understand how to read these things in context. Um, If you look at the end of verse 5, we see see this so that statement that comes here. And we'll see these clauses a couple more times throughout the chapter. Uh, So here, Paul says, these things that I'm telling you, these things need to be practiced and done so that the word of God may not be reviled. So throughout, we've, we've been saying that there's this stress in this letter and in the other pastoral epistles, there's this stress on having a credible reputation among outsiders. And this is the first place where this becomes entirely explicit, very clear of what he's getting at. This order in the home, in the family life, needs to happen so that the word of God may not be spoken ill of by outsiders or by anybody. And as we move on, we, uh, we see two more of these so that statements that we need to pay attention to. And again, they they clearly bring out this concern for the church to maintain a reputation that is above reproach. Uh, To look at those, at the end of verse 8, after Paul has shifted gears, he's shifted gears to give instruction to younger men now, in verse 8, and he's telling them simply to be self-controlled, to be sensible, that same word again, 
And after this, he reminds Titus, as a younger man, he reminds Titus he needs to be a model of good works, one who shows integrity in his teaching, so that an opponent may have nothing evil to say about us. And then at the end of verse 10, Paul gives instruction to slaves. And and slaves at the time, in this period of the ancient world, slaves are part of the household, so they're part of the broader family unit still. We need to remember that. And he's giving instruction to them. And he's saying that uh, Paul Paul says to slaves, they need to subject themselves to their masters, well-pleasing, not refusing or arguing against their masters, not stealing from them, so that in everything they might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So what's, what's Paul getting at with these so that statements when he's kind of wrapping things up like that? Well, to summarize, he's saying this. He's saying, be aware of your behavior. Be aware of your God-given responsibility so that, one, the message about God won't be reviled or criticized. Two, so that your opponents may be shamed by the fact that really they have nothing evil to say about you. They don't have a leg to stand on when it comes to criticism. And three, so that in everything you might adorn, and this, this, this really beautiful word here, you might adorn, the word is cosmeo, it's the word we get cosmetic from, the idea is to make beautiful, to make attractive, to make pleasing, so that you might adorn, make beautiful, the doctrine of God, our Savior. And the thing that is so important for us to see here is that Sure, we can look at this and we can see that there's definitely some cultural distance here when we're looking at these, these texts. And while perhaps there definitely is this cultural distance between us and the text that can make it really difficult for us to apply the teachings in this chapter, we can, we can look at these so that statements, these so that clauses, and right away we can get a sense of Paul's real passion, his real driving force behind why he's giving these injunctions here. What, it, what his main point is behind all of them. So, you just ask yourself, what are the ways we, us, what, what are the ways we need to live in our context, in our spheres of influence, that would prevent the word of God from being potentially, potentially maligned or criticized, reviled? What are the ways that we need to live in our context that would make it so would-be opponents would have nothing evil to say about us? That would make it so in all things we're making attractive, making appealing, making beautiful the teachings of God. And I think this is really the key way to look at how to apply what Paul is getting at here in this text. And we need to note how important Paul thinks that these apparently small behavioral sort of matters are, these matters of conduct. We we see them, they seem kind of trivial in some ways, but Paul thinks this is very important. Uh, There's a theologian named Thomas Oden, and he has this really interesting point to say about this passage here. He says this, He says, some would argue that it would do little good to begin in Crete of all places with the tiniest bits of behavior and try to reshape the world towards godliness from the ground up. It might seem at first that the pastoral effort was too microscopic, micromanaged, and really that systemic, institutional, or political evils might better have been first addressed. Yet this is just the point most misunderstood by systemic reformers who have not adequately grasped the apostles' way of transformation. Only by descending to reshape social existence, beginning with the smallest, least conspicuous matters of daily life, is social conduct, in social conduct, is the society actually changed. So it's this beautiful point where he's saying you need to change the heart. 
you need to start with these ground-up issues. You need to start with the family. You need to start with the way that you treat each other in your own spheres of influence. Absolutely, before anything else can actually change on a larger level. Uh, one more point about this section, and then we need to move on. It's, it's very important for us to note that while there's certainly an emphasis in this whole section about the church remaining above reproach, Paul's point here is absolutely not that Titus can expect to prevent the wider world from criticizing the gospel message and the church. Absolutely not. Paul's point is that the church ought to conduct itself in such a way that no justifiable charge, no legitimate accusation, word of condemnation can be brought against it. That's a huge, huge difference. And I think we we really need to notice that because if you see this text as saying, okay, the main point of this whole text is that the church, Christians need to live in such a way that they're never criticized by anybody for any reason. And if you see that, you say, okay, well, um, let's just make the church look as much like the world as possible. We'll blend right in. We'll fit right in. And this obviously isn't what Paul is saying. Paul of all people, we know this, Paul of all people gets that the gospel message itself, by its very nature, is confrontational and scandalous. Paul's whole Christian life was one of being reviled and criticized, persecuted. So obviously his point isn't just for the church to avoid criticism, period. His point is that the church needs to avoid legitimate guilt, needs to avoid behavior that discredits the gospel message from being clearly proclaimed. So he's sort of saying, don't take the inherent offense out of the gospel, but let it be the gospel message itself that is scandalous, not your behavior, not your conduct. At the start of this uh, message, I said that the first part of this chapter is about what healthy teaching consists of for various demographics. The second part is about the uh, theological basis for this healthy teaching. It's the gas in the tank, so to speak. And so that's what we're going to turn to now. This beautiful, beautiful passage here. So look at verse 11. It says this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So here, this, really, this is, is a beautiful summary of the significance of the gospel message. I wouldn't go so far as to say this is a summary of the gospel message, but this is a summary of the significance, the power of the gospel message. And next week, when we look at chapter 3, we'll see another really beautiful summary that's in chapter 3 as well, a similar sort of idea. But this one here is especially powerful for us for a couple key reasons. Uh, First, like we said, it provides the basis, provides the underpinning, uh, the God-given power for everything that Paul has commanded thus far in the chapter. And second, because it provides this really all-encompassing past, present, future look at what salvation is. So let's look at this. You see, verse 11 starts with, For, for, the grace of God has appeared. Meaning, there's a direct connection with what comes earlier. This isn't just a one-off little statement. He's not saying a bunch of things and then all of a sudden saying, Hey, I'm just going to give you some doctrine here. 
for the grace of God has appeared. So it's, why does the church need to live this way? Why does the church need to maintain this order? Why does the church need to see to it that they adorn, make beautiful the teaching of God, our Savior? Well, it's because for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. He's appeared in human time and space, flesh and blood history. Grace means generous gift. And it's clear in this context that when Paul's referring to grace, he's referring to the grace that has appeared and arrived in Jesus Christ. And this appearing is something that the world, that we, need to reckon with. Need to figure out what we're going to do with it. That's, and this is so beautiful because that's the nature of an appearing. Right? The difference between dreaming up a new philosophy and an appearing, which is so central to the gospel message. Something happens, something appears, And you can ignore it, you can reject it, you can choose to turn a blind eye to it, but you have to reckon with it in some sort of way, just by virtue of its appearing. So Paul Paul goes on to say that this salvation bringing grace, what, what it does in the present time, okay, so it's appeared, past tense, it's appeared, but what does it do now? Well, it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled, again, sensible, prudent, upright lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. The word for train here, training us, has this connection to the word child. The, the origin of the word has the connection to the word child. So there's this connotation of instructing, raising up, parenting, bringing to maturity. And this, this is what the grace of God that has appeared does which is such an important point. We talk about saving grace. How often do we talk about training grace? That's exactly what he says here. This is so important to to feel the weight of because grace, salvation, these terms are, are very much, in our common language, very much associated in our minds with past, finished, accomplished events. We sing amazing grace. It saved a wretch like me. And in one sense, this is Very, very good. Very important to retain this whole idea of a past accomplished event, for sure. But as as many of us know, as many of us know, what can sometimes happen is these things, these ideas degenerate into our minds into sort of useless religious ideas that just have to do with the past, and they just kind of sit there and get dusty. Yeah, I've been saved. I've got my ticket punched. I've got that whole thing taken care of, but in the meantime, I'm not quite sure what to do. Not quite sure what that does. And Paul here, he he outlines so helpfully exactly what happens in the meantime. Such an important passage. Grace trains us to be discerning people, is what he's getting at. Trains us in the present age to say no to these things, ungodliness, worldly passions, and trains us to say yes to these things, self-control, uprightness, godliness. And, And Paul is not talking here about some magical, passive thing That sort of just happens. You know, the grace of God has appeared and before you know it, all of a sudden we're making these decisions. Not at all. And we should know this because our study throughout of of these pastoral epistles emphasizes this so much. Paul talks about how, how there's this real discipline, this real training, this real athletic sort of imagery that accompanies the Christian life. So what I think Paul is saying here is that grace, this generous gift in Jesus Christ, has an effect. 
You don't receive a gift of this sort without it doing something to you. And again, remember, this, this is all Paul's basis for why we need to live the way that we do, the, the, the way that he's outlined in the chapter so far. So in other words, these so that statements that we talked about earlier, they're fully true and they're fully important, but these are absolutely not the be-all and end-all of holy living. Okay, that's a little confusing, but I'm going to explain that. Paul, Paul would never, ever say that the only reason, the sole reason to live a godly life is so that outsiders would think well of you. So that you wouldn't discredit the gospel message. That's definitely part of it. That's why there's those so that statements. But he would never say that that's the only reason or the ultimate reason. Because to to do that would be to reduce holiness and godly living to just a, a strictly pragmatic, utilitarian function. And it's much, much more than that to Paul. The overarching reason for him for living a holy life is because the grace of God has appeared. Appeared. Epiphany is literally the word. There's been this epiphany of grace that has happened. And that grace is not without effect. It's not in vain, as he says in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, There's a popular and very true saying that says, we're not saved by our works, but we're saved for them. We're saved for good works. And we, we see that here. It's all motivated, it's all empowered by this grace of God that has appeared in Jesus Christ that trains us. The final portion of this passage uh, continues in the same vein, but now it focuses on this future element. So past, present, now this future element of salvation. He says this, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So again, we see this idea of being redeemed from lawlessness for the sake of being zealous for good works. But also, we see Paul saying that as we're being instructed by this training grace, so there's the saving grace that has appeared, we're being instructed by this training grace. As that's happening, we're also waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. So the grace of God has appeared, trains us, and we wait for the glory of God to appear. It's it's really this beautiful parallel sort of structure here, this poetic statement. This has appeared, we're waiting for his glory to appear. Again, just uh, one point on this is this whole idea of waiting for the glory of God uh, as we wrap up. And I'll call up the worship team at this time. This as we finish here. Um, This text teaches us that Christians are called to be future-oriented people. Hope-oriented people. Uh, The theological jargon for it would be be to say eschatologically-minded people. That's the idea there. So people who live in this present age, absolutely this present age, but we do so intentionally waiting for the glory of God to appear. Waiting to see him. And this... This just struck me as I was studying this because this whole idea of waiting for his appearance is such a central part of the Christian tradition that I think we really need to recover today. That's my sense. You think of the the beatitude that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Some of us read that and we say, okay, 
Like, I get to see him. Like, what's the big deal? Like, I guess it means I'm in heaven and there's a bunch of good stuff there. But seeing God in and of itself as this hope is a very central part of the Christian tradition. The hope of seeing God very rarely drives us, I would say. Very rarely drives me. And there are probably thousands of reasons for that that we could list off of why it might be that this is something that doesn't play a part in our daily lives. But we need to realize that this has been such a central part of all the scriptural witness and the Christian tradition for thousands of years. And if you keep that in mind when you read scripture, you'll see that cropping up all over the place. I guarantee it. All over the place. This hope of seeing God, the church being presented to God as this pure, spotless offering to him. Such a central thing in the Bible. Uh, Gordon Fee, he's, he's a New Testament scholar, and he's one of the guys that I've been studying a lot about this text. And uh, he reflects on a time where at the end of his teaching career, he was invited to have this little Q&A session with some of the students. So he gets invited. They're going to have these questions for him. He's about to retire. And he says that uh, one student asked him, if you were to go back and begin pastoral ministry again, knowing what you know now, what would you do? What would you emphasize? What would you make central? And Fee's answer said, or his, his answer was this, no matter how long it might take, I would set about with a single passion to help a local body of believers recapture the church's understanding of itself as an eschatological community, as a hope-oriented community, a future endgame community. And he goes on to say how we've just, we've so often missed the point of that. And the biblical authors did not miss the point of that. That was such a main central thing to them. So just keep that in mind as we continue through this, this book of Titus next week. Uh, in closing, I just want to read these words uh, again from St. John Chrysostom about the importance of this appearing of God's glory and then we're going to respond in worship. Chrysostom says this, Nothing, nothing is more blessed and more desirable than that appearing of the glory of God. Words are not able to represent it. The blessings of it entirely surpass our understanding. Let's pray together. God, we long to know what it means to, to see you, to see your face, and we just acknowledge that so many times we, we sing about this in our worship songs and we uh, come across it in prayer books and, and that sort of thing, but we don't often feel the weight of it. And God, I do ask that you can help us to be a, a hope-oriented people at Forest Grove Community Church, that we can be people who are just so uh, immersed in the, in the truth that we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of your son, who you love. And that we know that because we're there, because we're with him, we know that that's a firm, lasting place to be. And so God, just help us to, to know what it means to be changed by this grace that not only saves, but also trains teaches us to renounce ungodliness. Um, for those of us here who just feel so uh, uh, weak and just failures, perhaps, help us to know that your grace, when we, when we look to you and we understand your grace, it has an effect. It changes things. It helps us to say yes to you. So God, just give us your power by your Holy Spirit. Teach us to be people who desire you, who long to see your face. Let that be something that we can grow in just today. I pray these things in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen.